It's three Sundays uh, I've been gone. Some of you go like, who are you and why are you here? Uh, my name is John Irwin. I'm an associate pastor here. And uh, you guys all took summer vacations. I took an early fall vacation. Just got back. Uh, I have never been unplugged as long, longest vacation of my life, 16 days. Was on a cruise in the Mediterranean. And I am basking in mellowness. Only for a few moments until I get into Romans. Then I am amped up. I am so glad you're here. I see some new faces. And uh, we're launching a study in the book of Romans. So get your notes out. And um, you know, just a little sidebar for those of you who don't know me. I love it when I see that you have a pen in your hand. And even if you're just writing out your grocery list, it makes me think that you're taking notes on something profound that I might say. Not that there's all that much that's profound. And anybody who needs a pen, I have one. There you go, have one. Um, so we're looking at Romans chapter 1, and uh, this is the beginning of a study that we're going to do. And we need to think through this because oftentimes when you hear study in Romans, you're going to instantly think what? This is a study that's going to be what? Weighty, deep, theological, right? And... It, it can be, but I want you to understand that as we look at this book, it's going to be a game changer. I believe it is the cornerstone book of the entire New Testament, and Pastor Scott and I will be in this book for a while now. We're going to do part one uh, that we'll cover before Christmas, then we'll do some other things and we'll come back to it this spring. It has been described as the most systematic thesis on faith, and clearly it's Paul's most legal-oriented epistle. Um, he's going to talk about the one key concept, and if you want to jump ahead, you can circle Romans 1.17, justification by faith alone, and he's going to spend 16 chapters proving his point. So you're going to see that as Paul writes, it's like he's a, a legal scholar, and for those of you who, who kind of think, you know, kind of in those kind of terms, this is your kind of meat of the word kind of deal. But I want to caution you, if Romans for us over the next several months becomes all about the head and not about the heart, then we've missed the point of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not just an intellectual pursuit that we want to do as we study this book. Now, it is the most comprehensive book in the Bible describing the, uh, this term, soteriology. Ooh, what's that mean? That is the doctrine of salvation. It is the linchpin. It is the cornerstone book that if you have any questions on what it means to be saved, what it means to have a relationship with Christ, what it means to be redeemed, what it means to be justified, what it means when God, the word propitiation is being used, you go, wow, those are big words. Well, school is back in session. Let's get busy, right? And so this book talks about that. But it's also not just a book about doctrine, it's also a book about duty. And so, if we were going to outline the book, the first eight chapters are very doctrinal. Then there's an interlude in chapters 9 through 11, for those of you who have any Jewish ancestry in you, you're going to say, hey, but what about the Jews and the Jewish nation, and, and how does that fit in God's plan for salvation? There's a little parenthesis in verses, uh, chapters 9 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 16 is the practical kind of uh, to-dos and how you apply this great doctrine of justification. So let's get to it. What's the background of the book? First of all, the author. The author is Paul, 
And yet some of you say, wait, 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 is it for sure, Paul? Because Romans 16.22 says that Tertius is the one who's writing this book. Paul has probably an eyesight problem. Tertius is probably his uh, manuscript. Uh, he, he, he's, uh, they call this amanuensis. He, he's writing for Paul as Paul dictates to him. We know Paul was a persecutor of the Christians. He has this radical salvation experience in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. And uh, he, he's a tent maker, so he does other things besides preaching the gospel. And he is the author. When and where was it written? Well, let me tell you this. It was written in Corinth, probably on Paul's third missionary journey. He hadn't ever gotten to Rome first, probably in, in the winter of uh, AD 56, 57. Uh, and notice that Phoebe, in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, she's probably the one who brings this, this letter to the church in Rome. Again, want to highlight this one little deal. Some people say, well, Paul is such you know, anti-women, and, you know, he's kind of a chauvinist. You don't see this in the New Testament. In fact, again, a woman is prominently involved in the spread of the gospel, and I believe Phoebe is the one who actually delivers the book uh, to the church in Rome. Now, Rome is located 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean. The reason I know this is because I was on a cruise ship exactly 14 days ago, and I was in Rome, um, I, and that, that port city... Let me tell you, if they had like early morning drive traffic, the gospel would have never got out of the port city there because Rome's 15 miles inland, and let me tell you, it felt every bit of 15 miles, 45 minutes, hour later by the time we got to Rome. And so um, it was the key city, uh, Caesar did all of his stuff there in Rome, and that's where uh, the church is located that this book is written to. What are the distinctive features of the book of Romans? Very quickly, do you think it's kind of a short book? No, no, it's the longest epistle in the New Testament, 7,101 words. Paul's average, to put it in perspective, Paul's average epistle is about 1,300 words. In fact, he gives the longest salutation in this book of any book that he writes. And if you're an English teacher here, you're looking at this, this looks like from like verse 2 on, like that's one long run-on sentence. You would have marked it up with red ink, and he would have flunked English 101. And so that's, that's why he wrote in Greek. And so uh, it's also called, thank you, work with me here. Um, he's, it's called the Constitution of Biblical Christianity, and it really is a legal document. Another interesting note is that Paul didn't found the church. He had never been to Rome, and we'll talk about how the church got started in just a moment. What's his purpose in writing the book? Well, it's clearly doctrinal. He wants to lay out a, a concise and, um, and direct case for how salvation is going to be treated. It's kind of a treatise, like I said, on so soteriology. But it's going to demonstra demonstrate that the salvation is for the Gentiles, and yet he's also going to talk about these covenant promises to Israel, that how those two can work together. Remember, the Jews think they're kind of God's special people, and they are, but how does that integrate in Christianity? And so, again, he's going to give you positional truth in chapters 1 through 8, the little interlude in chapters 9 through 11 about Israel, then the practical truth in chapters 12 through 16. Next, how was this church established? Because this is where Roman Catholics and Protestants have divided camps for a millennia or more. So, how is this church established? Paul didn't go there. 
So how did a church get started in Rome? Do we have some nominations? Well, some think it's the Jews that were expelled by Claudius, and you can read about that in Acts 18, and that happened in A.D. 49. Uh, and I'm not going to go through all the positions on how the church got established. Most of you know that I post all my teaching notes online, and you can read that for yourself if you want you know, to put yourself asleep at night. Just It's a real cure for insomnia. But here's the big one. What does the, if you came from a Roman Catholic background, what um, does the Roman Catholic Church say about the church in Rome? Who established it? What's his name? Peter. And so, uh, so Peter built this. I was just there. The, and you can see the Basilica of St. Peter. It's an unbelievable building. It is the biggest church. Some of you may uh, remember a TV show back in the day by the name of uh, the guy, his name was Gomer Pyle. You'll have to be over 50 to remember this. And I stood there and went, golly! I mean, it is unbelievable, the amount of money, and it was just over the top. Now, the, the reason that the Catholic Church believes that Peter is the founder of the church, or in fact, they believe he's the founder of the church, is because Jesus said to him, upon this rock I will build my church, Peter, Petros, Petras, we can, we'll do that to study another time. But think about this. Who is the book of Romans written to? Is it to Jews or Gentiles primarily? Gentiles. Who did, was Peter's ministry to? To the Jews. Uh, Paul said he didn't build on another's foundation, Romans 15, 20. And if Peter was the founder of this church, why isn't he prominently mentioned in all the other people that are mentioned in Romans 16? So I don't think Peter is the founder of the, of the church in Rome. What I do think is there are converts from all of... Paul's previous missionary journeys, and I think they have relocated to Rome. They've found each other, and, now, and, and so even though he's not the, the church planter per se, his converts are the founders of this church. So let's get to the text. Let's look at his credentials here in chapter 1. You're going to th see three facts about the Apostle Paul. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Three things describing Paul. First of all, he is a servant, the word doulos, a bondservant. It's the most slavish of all terms that he could have used. And when you are a slave, you are bound to a what? A master, right? You will have to answer to someone who is the boss man. Interesting enough, Paul from the get-go wants to relate to his audience because half of Rome, it was said at that time, were slaves. Rome had enslaved the world, and so instantly he creates a relationship with some of his Gentile believers who have been slaves, who are slaves, who are part of the church. He's also identifying with great Old Testament uh, saints who are known as bondservants of Jehovah God. Uh, Moses, uh, David, Joshua are described as bondservants. And so the question begs ourselves, who are we slaves to today? Do we see ourselves as God being the owner, the boss, the king, the Lord of our lives? Or do we kind of put God over here and really we're the boss and we kind of let him in when we need him? It's a different time. Who's driving the car of your life? Are you at the, at the wheel and you're the king, you're the boss, or are you the servant? And Jesus is at the wheel. Thank you, Carrie Underwood. And we're in the back seat, right? Who, who's in charge of, of your life? You see, I think so often we don't see Jesus as our Lord. 
we see Jesus as a safety net. And as long as things are going well, this is what we do to God in essence. I got this. I got this. Just step aside, God. Now, no one would ever say that out loud. We just live that way. We live as if we're in charge. And from the get-go, Paul says, no, I'm a bondservant of the Most High God. Secondly, he's an apostle. Now, how is he described as apostle? Because we think the 12 disciples had to work with Jesus. He's a special apostle because of what? What happened to him? Remember Acts chapter uh, 9? He, he has this Damascus road experience. 1 Corinthians 9 describes, it, describes this. He saw Christ. He uh, is an apostle by personal invitation of God. And uh, there's all kinds of verses that support that, and, and you can read those on your own. So he's a modern, today we would call him a church planner, right? He plants church, he goes on missionary journeys, and he's setting the stage for his writers to say, hey, look at, I'm delivering you some very important information, and I've got the credentials and the apostleship to back it up. Thirdly, it says he is what? Set apart. There's this special calling, and his calling is to the Gentiles, to us, the church. And so he's got it coming from both sides. How do the Jewish religious leaders think about Paul during this time. Not happy with him. He's a former Pharisee. He's a religious leader in his own right. And now he's following Yeshua, the Christ Jesus, the one who was crucified. And so he's, he's always living in constant fear for his life. A, Jewish uh, leaders who want to knock him off, so to speak, and then those who think he's just a crackpot, like, who are you and why should I listen to what you said? And so Paul is living on the edge. But his credentials are that he's a servant, he's an apostle, he's set apart. Not everyone has the constitution to be a church-planting, visionary, on-the-edge kind of Christian. And it's amazing because Paul is kind of known to you know, be pretty direct in his teaching and yet it's that very personality of his that spread the gospel throughout Asia, through the Mediterranean, Italy, the whole world. And by the way, being in that, uh, some of you say, well, why were you in, in Rome? I, I was just on a cruise with my wife celebrating our 37th wedding anniversary. And for what it cost, it counts. Yeah, thank you. 37 years. Yeah. <clears throat> but as I totaled up the receipts, it's going to count for 37, 38, 39, and 40. I'm just telling you right now. We're not doing some cruises for a while. But um, the bottom line is Paul's personality was so forceful. It, the gospel spread because of that uh, just electricity uh, in his life, so to speak. Now, what is he preaching about? Well, his Christ. Who is Jesus? Look at verses 2 through 4. You get a little Christology right here in three verses. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was a descendant from David according to the flesh, and now verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, this is part of that really run-on sentence in the Greek. It's just one long paragraph, and we, we've put our own punctuation in there. So he's going to look at Jesus in two ways, his humanity and his deity. Verse 3 describes his humanity. He was born. He's an historical figure in the sense that his mother was a real woman. Her name was Mary, 
and, and he's of the seed of David. That's been prophesied. Go to Micah 5.2, Isaiah 9.6. Go to Luke 2. You see the fulfillment of the pro- prophecy in the genealogies. He is man, but he's also God. And you see that in his deity, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, Lord. He's declared to be the Son of God, this spirit of holiness. There's a, there's a difference maker in his life. But the key phrase in here that you need to underline in your text is this one. By his resurrection from the dead. That's what separates Christianity from all other world religions. There are plenty of people who say, hey, follow me, believe this, do that. There is only one person in all of history who claimed to be God, died on the cross, paid for your sins, and rose again and proved it with his life. And Christianity is a Christianity of the empty tomb. And so clearly he's laying out the framework that Jesus is worth following because he's both man and God. Someone said it this way, Jesus was just as much man as if he had never been God and just as much God as if he'd never been man. So, why did Jesus have to come? Because really the essence of this book is, why do we need Jesus? Why do we need faith? What's the big deal about salvation? Why do we need redemption? I want to suggest to you that Jesus provides today four things for you. Number one, He is your Savior. He is your Savior. Check out Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I won't look at them with you, but you can look at this later. He is your Savior. Secondly, He is your mediator. He's that go-between, as 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, between God and man. He's that bridge. Number three, He is your high priest. And again, if you came, if you came from a Jewish background today, you understand the, the concept of a high priest. We don't think of that in, in our terms in, in Protestant churches today. Hebrews 5, 7, and 9, he's your high priest. And lastly, he's your king. Multiple passages describing that in 1 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, Psalm 89. Now, I'm going to leave those on the screen for, not only so you can write them down, but I want you to think about this. As Christ followers... Jesus plays all four of these roles in your life. He is your savior. He's your mediator. He's your high priest. I was on this cruise, and I noticed that there was a Roman Catholic priest who was assigned to be the cruise priest for, you know, the whole trip. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of cool, but where's the Protestant pastor? So I thought, I think I'm going to go nominate myself. So I went to the front desk. Seriously, you're going, you didn't. Yes, I did. Um, well, they have in Catholic Mass like every day at five. How about at least one Protestant service? We're like in the birthplace of Christianity right there. So I went to the front desk, and I, I get assigned to the entertainment coordinator. Now, this is the person who books the shows. And I said, uh, hey, is there going to be a Protestant service? And she goes, well, we don't have a Protestant pastor on board. I go, yes, you do. <laughs> and she goes, well, who are you and what you do? I go, it's not that important. Um, and no, I said, no, I'm a pastor at a church. And she says, well, would you like to have a service? I said, I think there's a lot of Christians who would like to have a service. And can we have one? She says, okay, well, I'll assign you a room and we'll put it in the, like, the, you know, they have this little journal they put out the, today in Rome or Barcelona or wherever you are. So next thing I know, like Protestant service, 10 o'clock Sunday morning, I'm going, bingo, here we go. And that's what, I was tired of playing bingo, so I wanted to do something else. Um, <laughs> any of you have been on a cruise, there's, there's like three things you can do eat like monstrous amounts of food, and then go confess your gluttony. Number two, you watch wonderful sunsets on the bow of your ship, and then, you know, and then you go eat more food at the midnight buffet. Um, 
or you play bingo. So, I mean, it's just not a whole lot. Or you sit in the jacuzzi, I guess. But the bottom line is, we have this service. You're saying, get to the point. I'm trying. Um, so, I, I'm sorry. I, I have had no coffee either today. So, I, I preach this message, and, and the cool thing is, um, I knew I'm going to be preaching on this when I get back, so I just think I'm going to, I'm going to talk about uh, Romans 14, 1, 14, 15, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because what happened is they had the, pro, uh, the Catholic Mass at 9 o'clock and the non, I think they called the non-denominational service at 10. So I went to the Catholic service at 9 just to kind of check it out. And um, I found out that the, that the Catholic priest on the ship um, had to act for everybody. So I meet with him. I say, uh, they asked me if I could preach. He goes, oh, that's great. <laughs> he was like, so glad because I'm Catholic. Um, but what he did is he took off his Catholic robe uh, for after the first service, and just now he wears a white robe. So I found out the difference between Catholics and Episcopalians. It's black robe for Catholics, apparently white robes for Episcopalians, and it worked for him, and then he read the Scripture, and I preached, and it all was good. But the bottom line is I got to talk about the gospel. Now, I want to tell you the average age in my audience that day was about 93. <laughs> they were good Lutherans from Minnesota, and... Um, because they were feeling guilty, like, I should be in church. Um, and so I had quite a different style, as you can tell, from my predecessor in the first hour. And a guy in the service, as I'm preaching, just starts bawling. I mean, he just starts crying. I'm going, I was that offensive in the first 90 seconds? The guy's crying like he's so upset with me? Well, I, I go to sit down, and afterwards, people are saying thank you and where they're from and introducing themselves. He says, can I talk to you? I said, well, sure. He goes... I've been sober for 20 years, and in the 12-step program, step five is the idea of confessing, and I need to tell you about my life. And I said, well, you know, the gospel says you don't have to tell me, you don't have to talk to a priest, you don't have to talk to a pastor, you don't have to talk to a rabbi, you can go directly to God. And that's why these, these words mean something. You, you, you can go straight to God, you don't need a mediator, you don't need a priest to confess. He goes, no, no, I, I need to talk to you. There were some other folks from our, tr our church that were on this trip with us, and I'm sitting down with this guy, and I ended up talking with him for over an hour as he just poured out this life that was far from God. And I won't get into the details, but he told me things that, oh, no wonder you're miserable. No wonder you feel guilt. No wonder you feel horrible because all the lies you've shared and the treason you've committed and the adultery in your marriage and, and went on and on and on. And the more I talked, the more he cried. And the more I prayed. And I said, you know, Jesus died for that. Jesus died for that. And it dawned on me in that moment. You know, we have a whole church here of forgiven sinners. And yet we often so take for granted that we are saved, that we're forgiven, that we're justified, that we're born again. And that's why this book of Romans is so important that you ground in your heart and your head that this isn't just a theology study. You see, Christ didn't come to take bad people and make them good people. Remember that. He takes dead people and makes them alive, and that's what the book of Romans is about. And so as he confessed, and I'm, I'm like taking notes so I can track this journey like 
there were how many different women? And I mean, it just went on and on and on. And he didn't want to pray to receive Christ. He just wanted to talk. And he, I feel sad. And someday, if you want to pray for him, ask me and I'll show you a picture. I took a picture of his back so you can't see his face. And that picture is in my phone. And he has a funny T-shirt about, I don't need to ask questions. I have a wife who needs Google, it said on his T-shirt. And um, I'm praying for him. I'm praying for every day that another Christian would come across his path. But he didn't get the concept that he does, his mediator is Jesus Christ. It's not another human being. That, that the, his great high priest is Jesus. You don't need a, a, a priest to confess to. And so that's why Jesus became man and God. He is God and man. He is your Savior. He is your mediator. He is your high priest. He is your king. Now, what is Paul's calling in verses 5 through 7? Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be a saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Longest salutation of any of His epistles right there, and it started earlier and ends longer. Four things. Four things about his calling, and I want you to note these four things because they're the same calling you have on your life. First of all, he has grace from God, right? Unmerited favor. Now, let's, again, define grace and mercy. We get those mixed up. Remember, grace is getting what you don't deserve, which is the penalty of sin. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, which is eternal separation from God. So, he's saying we have grace from God, and you have grace from God. Number two, he's called by God. Now, you're called. When you are a Christ follower, God's put his hand on your life, and he's plucked you out. Uh, it says in, in Psalms, out of the miry pit. And nothing can take you from God's grasp if you are a Christ follower today. That's why memorize, when you feel like, oh, God's distant, read Romans 8 again. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he goes through a whole list of things. You are called by God. You are called by God. What's your calling? I got to tell you, um, being gone from you for a, like three Sundays, I was just dying to be back at ABF. I love this place. Especially when I saw people for 12 days who it seemed to me that the most important thing in their life was gambling, eating, pleasure, seeing the sights, trying not to gain two pounds a day, as they say on the cruise, all these other things. Remember one night, I was, Cheryl and I were sitting in these lounge chairs watching the sun set on the Mediterranean, and I thought, this is a pretty cool thing. I love being with my wife of 37 years watching this beautiful sunset. But by the end of the trip, I'm ready to be back in the game. I want to be here. I want to be with you. I, I know my call. My call is to be a, one of the pastors here at, at ABF, loving people, serving you, and knowing that God will use me even though I'm a ding-dong sometimes. You know, sometimes I do the stupidest things, and I won't re recite all those. Just, you can ask my wife. She'll give you a, a long list. No, she wouldn't, because she's not that kind of woman. 
But there is such a great personal satisfaction for me personally just to be here. And I love being a part of this church. So we have grace from God. We're called by God. I know what my call is. What's your call? Thirdly, we're loved by God. It's a, a term of endearment, intimate. And you're loved by God. And I think some of you go through life thinking that God is an angry taskmaster instead of a loving father. And some of you don't understand the concept of feeling loved. And you're trying to prove to God that you're worthy of His love. Again, when you are loved, it's like I have pictures of my grandkids on my phone, and they can be the biggest stinkers in the world, but they're loved by their grandpa, by papa. There's nothing better than calling my kids and my grandkids going, Papa! Abba is the word in Aramaic. Father, Daddy, you are loved by a Heavenly Father. And then lastly, you see peace from God. And the, and the idea of peace can only happen because you rest in the fact that you're not in charge. Because He's the sovereign King, the Lord of Lords, he gives you all those things, and your identity is wrapped up in His grace, in your call, in your love by the Father, and ultimately this peace that comes from God. Now, sometimes you can't explain it, right? Remember some of the times in your life when cr things are the craziest, and you can't fathom how you get, God gives you this kind of supernatural peace. So, we tend to live life very full, Cheryl and I. So, not only did we go on a cruise, but in the middle of that, right before the cruise, uh, like a month out, we said, I think we should sell our house in Orange County. Some of you know we've lived up here for eight years, but we've had this house in Yorba Linda that we've had to rent out, and my son's lived there with five other guys, and it's been a revolving door of, well, just imagine what it's like to manage a house when you're 75 miles away. So we put up on the market, it sold in eight days, and now it closes escrow while we're on the cruise. It was awesome. I signed all the papers I could, and I said, and now you can't get a hold of me. Nah, 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 nah. And for 16 days, I am unplugged. And there was such a peace um, that I couldn't be called, I couldn't solve the problem, couldn't fix it if it went south. And I wonder at times if our lifestyles are such that because of technology, we live life like we're a rat in a maze, being forced to answer phone calls we don't want to answer, emails we don't want to read, and we're tied to the tyranny of busyness and urgency, and we're stressed out all the time. Now, I don't want you to feel jealous the fact that I, I was seriously unplugged, and I'm sorry I didn't return any of your emails. I didn't return one phone call. I mean, it would cost me $932 to return your call. I'm in the middle of the ocean in the Mediterranean. It was funny, though, because the one day we got rain was our last day, and I'm on this tour bus in Barcelona driving around, you know, lamenting the fact that I'm going to be flying home. And I did check my email then, mainly to set my fantasy football team. But anyway, besides that, I got to tell you, there was peace. And I thought, there's a direct correlation with peace in your life, and I want you to think about this, and unplugging from all the distractions that are in your life. Now, if I had more time and I wasn't covering 17 verses, we'd stop right now, and I'd invite you to just be silent 
before the Lord. But I'm going to invite you to do this anyway after today, after this morning. And whatever that thing is that's hovering over you, that's worrying you, that's causing you great stress that you know, can't solve and you can't control, you got to let go of it. You got to let go of it. And I don't know what that is for you, but I know what my triggers are. And then I try to be God in my own life, I try to fix it and solve it. And yet our calling and Paul's calling is that we have this wonderful grace from God, we're called by God, we're loved by God, and we have peace from God. Four things all of us should be true of us as believers. Well, what's his concern? Look at verses 8 through 13. I want to give you three evidences of his concern for these believers. First of all, in verse 8, we see his thankfulness for their faith. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, he gets a little hyperbole here. I don't know if it was in the whole world, but maybe a bit of exaggeration, but clearly throughout the whole Roman Empire. He's touching their faith as the key element, not because they're so great, but because their faith is what's being proclaimed. It's like saying, hey, everyone's going to the party. He's a little exaggerative. Not everybody's going to the party. By the way, that never worked when I was a high school kid, when I wanted to do something. Ever think about that? Like, but dad, everybody's going to this party. And my dad would say, not, apparently not everybody. I go, what do you mean? Because you're not. Oh, what a killjoy, dad. Um, but Paul is saying here, your faith has proclaimed everywhere. It's extraordinary. Second evidence of his concern. He prayed for them. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. This idea of uh, without ceasing doesn't mean uh, uh, necessarily continuously, but there's a constant awareness. It's always kind of going on in his mind. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed and come to you. It took, Paul is concerned about this church in Rome. He didn't plant it. It's, it's, it's uh, followers who have come to faith in Christ who have relocated there, and he's praying for them. He wants to see them. And I think about how desperately he was praying for them. I wonder how desperate we are to pray for people in our lives. Thirdly, his, his evidence of his concern is his desire to see them, verses 11 through 13. And I won't read the whole section, but on the, on the screen there you see that I long that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. There's this idea of verse 12 of mutual encouragement. He wants to equip them. He wants his DNA to rub off on them. And I want to encourage you that if you want to grow spiritually, you need to invest life on life. And we have a little ministry here called E-Groups. And if you're a man, you need to get into a men's discipleship this year. We haven't talked a lot about it. It hasn't been a big public deal, but we'll talk more about that on Saturday if you come to the, the barbecue. We want to invest life on life, and some of you are in that, and there are guys here waiting and looking to add some guys to their small group of two or three to be in an e-group this year. And that's the essence of why he was concerned, that he was thankful for their faith, he prayed for them, he was desiring to see them. Well, what is his convictions? And this is really the central part of our text this morning, verses 14 through 16. These are the three great I am statements that Paul makes. First of all, he says, I'm under obligation, verse 14. He is compelled. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's covering all the bases, Jews, Gentiles, barbarians, free, everybody. And it's this compulsion. He's compelled. And my question to you is, who are you burdened by 
What group are you caring desperately for in your own life? Who, who are you burdened for? He's compelled. Secondly, he's contagious. Look, I am eager to preach the gospel. Verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. No fear. Why would Rome be a problem for Paul? We got Caesar there. They're not Christian friendly, as you know. And for 300 years, it's tough being a Christian. It's not until Constantine in three, 312 that um, Christianity gets a footing that isn't, you know, you got a gun to your head or someone trying to kill you. And so he's bold. Some had accused him of being kind of afraid to come to Rome. You can check that story out in Acts chapter 20. But having, you know, been um, in, in Rome last week, here's something that's amazing to me because as I relived this, I'll show you a picture in a moment. He's thirdly, he is convinced. He says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed. I titled my message today, I'm not ashamed. You see, so often as Christians, we kind of act like we're ashamed of being a Christian. We're we're not bold in our faith. We're not contagious. We're not compelled. We're not convinced. And yet, 2,000 pe- years ago, people died for what they believed. Look at this picture. I was there. That's the Colosseum. That's where hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians were martyred for their faith. Spartacus wasn't just a story that was made for TV, real people died within those walls. They were thrown to wolves. They were crucified. They were, their, their bodies were torn apart by wild animals, by gladiators. And it's amazing, of all the places he went, this was the, the second most crowded place. Number one most crowded place was the Sistine Chapel. This was the second most crowded place. And it was a really bittersweet deal. I've always wanted to see the Colosseum but it hit me like a ton of bricks. Grace might be free, but it is not cheap. People died so that today you have faith in Christ. Your spiritual heritage tracks back 2,000 years, first with a Savior who died for you and loved you, and then Christians who gave their life for you so that that gospel message would permeate or perpetrate the entire world. The gospel is a game changer. And standing outside that Colosseum, it puts this verse in a different perspective. He says, I'm not ashamed. Allah, I'm not afraid of the gospel either. I'm not afraid for the consequences to my life. Caesar can take my life, but God is in control of my life. And again, let me remind you, half the, the Roman world are slaves at the time. And so this Colosseum represented both death and life to those who were in connection with it. And then you see the purpose of the gospel, it's for salvation. So you see the power of the gospel, it's the power of God. You see the purpose of the gospel, it's for salvation. Not in laws, not in legalism, not in how-tos and, and man-made lists which many of us are so tired of checking off a box. And the plan of the gospel is to everyone who believes. The gospel is not unique to just Protestant 
Christians. The gospel is extended to the whole world. And the difference maker is not whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox. It's one salient fact. Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've trusted alone in Him for your salvation? They say, John, isn't that rather narrow? Mm-hmm. Exactly what the gospel was. It's a, it's a narrow path open to everyone who wants to receive it. And so, it isn't, what's that, the thing about to the Jews first, what's that all about though? Well, it doesn't mean that Jews are the only ones who have the salvation, it just means they were first in the chronology of being offered salvation. And so, they were first in life. And with that privilege also came a lot of responsibility. And as you know, Paul then expands the gospel to not just the Jewish nation, but to the Gentile nation, which we're a part of. Well, what's his confidence in then? Verse 17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You need to memorize verse 16 and verse 17 in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and this is the theme verse of the entire book of Romans. He's going to spend 16 chapters defending this premise, that the righteous live by faith. I mean, the righteous don't live by going to church, by tithing, by being involved in children's ministry, working in Awana, coming to the men's event. No. Planting flowers, at least. No. None of that stuff counts for eternity in the sense that gets you to heaven. What he says gets you to heaven is the righteousness that is lived by faith, and that faith comes by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You say, John, you've said that about five times, and I'll say it 50 times more, because so many people come in and out of churches every week and don't get the big idea. The big idea is that Jesus loves you, died for you, redeemed you, adopted you as son, and you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's what makes you a Christian. And so the theme verse of Romans uh, is, I believe, chapter 1, verse 17. Now, he's quoting, I told you he quoted a lot of Old Testament verse. Do you know what Old Testament verse he's quoting here? He's quoting, write this down, Habakkuk, if you can even spell it, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Direct quote from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And he's saying this righteousness, again, he's using his legal jargon to make his point. So someone would say, why does God create such an impossible standard? Because I'm never going to be perfect. Exactly. God sets the bar at perfection, which is impossible, by the way, so that nobody can qualify for it, and so that nobody can boast that they lived a certain way and can earn favor with God, and nobody needs to be left out. And so in the next weeks to come, Pastor Scott will unpack this and show you that all humanity, all humanity are without excuse. So until we know the righteousness of the book of Romans, we cannot move on to the order in the book of Corinthians, the freedom of Galatians, the calling in Ephesians, the joy of Philippians, the head of Colossians, the coming of the, the chosen one in Thessalonians, and the substance of Hebrews. That's why this book is the linchpin of the entire New Testament. And we're not going to run through the book. But you know that Donald Gray Barnhouse took 11 years to preach through the book? Hold on, we're not going to take 11 years. Um, we might take about 11 months, but we're not going to take 11 years. And so I want to close with this as, as the worship team comes. Martin Luther says this, and if you don't remember who Martin Luther was, 
In the 1500s, he had some big issues with the Roman Catholic Church. He began to read the book of Romans and realized that faith and righteousness and a relationship with God didn't come through indulgences. It didn't come through some of the rituals that he as a, as a, pre, as a, as a priest was, was preaching as he, he read the book of Romans. He came up with 95 things that he was concerned about and he, he tacked those 95 concerns on the door of the Wittenberg church there in Germany. And ultimately, Martin Luther came to the conclusion that changed the course of human history. He came to the conclusion in Christ alone, in faith alone, that's the way to God, not by all the things we do. And in many of his writings, he talked about what it meant to have that kind of faith. And he said this, whatever your heart clings to is your God. And so today, I don't want you to miss the point that I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a student of the Word, so I get all excited about the number of words in Romans and the, the theology and, oh man, we're going to get some heavy doctrine. This is some good meat. Put that aside for a second. If all you heard today was a theology lesson, I have failed you miserably. Because what I want you to hear today is that you have a God who's bigger than your problem. I had the privilege of unplugging for 16 days, and I, I, I've come to a conclusion. I think our technology is robbing you of the ability to connect God in a way that is undisturbed. I'm not judging you that you're, right now when you leave, you're going to check your phone to see what, how your fantasy football team is doing. I'm going to wait till at least 2 o'clock, okay? But I think, I think that if you'll study the book of Romans with us with not just your head, but with your heart, ask God to teach you these great theological truths, not so much that your head would be filled with detail, but your hearts would be transformed with truth that make a difference in how you choose to live your life. And the takeaway today is, what is your heart clinging to? Because whatever you're clinging to, that's your God. I celebrated 37 years of marriage with my wife. But she's not my God. Believe me, if you put your faith in relationships, they will disappoint. If you put your faith in a job that you think will provide financial security, and that's what you're clinging to, it's never going to provide the ultimate security that a relationship with Christ does. As I look in your eyes today, some of you are burdened, and rightly so. Some of you are wondering whether you'll be alive a year from now. There are people in our church who are dying. Some of you are caring for an aging parent whose last breaths 
Only God knows. And there's a heaviness that if you want to be burdened by the cares of this world, you'll drown. You'll just, you'll just, you'll drown. And today, I want to give you the, the hope. God wants to give you the hope. You cling to Him. Put your heart in His hands. There's an Old Testament passage that says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely His. I don't want to minimize your problem. You may be in a horrible marriage, you're in a dead-end job, you may have kids that are just driving you crazy, you may have a, a work partner that's taking advantage. I, I don't know what the issue is, but I do know this. He is greater, he is bigger, he is stronger, he is more capable. And in this book of Romans, we're going to find that this theology that we're going to study will change your life if you move it from your head and into your heart. Amen? Let's pray. So, Lord, as we, we lift you up and we look at these great doctrines of the truth in the weeks ahead, may it not just be an intellectual study, but it would transform our lives, our hearts. I'd be remiss today if, if I didn't give you a chance to respond to the gospel. If you have never trusted Christ alone for your salvation, you'd like to do that. It's as simple as praying this prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. I know I can't do this on my own. I am a sinner. I need you. I place my trust in you alone, knowing that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross as payment in full for my sin. And I am justified, just as if I've never sinned, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. That's the realization that many of us have made in this room. But more likely, you're a Christian who's weighed down by something today. And your heart is clinging to something that it shouldn't cling to. And if there's something you got to let go of, literally, would you look up at me and say, i got to let go of this. I know it. Okay? 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 All over this room. See, because where your heart is, what it's clinging to, that's your God. So God, I ask you to take these things that we're clinging to, we release them to you, and Lord, you, you begin to work on us from the inside out. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That is an awesome song, isn't it? Because it's describing... What we're going to be looking at in the book of Romans over the next several weeks, those aren't just theological truths. These are transforming truths that will change your life. Amen? Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.